In the season leaves should love, since it gives them leave to move through the wind towards the ground they were watching while they hung. Legend says there is a seam stitching darkness like a name. Now when dying grasses veil earth from the sky in one last pale wave, as autumn dies to bring winter back, and then the spring, we who die ourselves can peel back another kind of veil that hangs among us like a thick smoke. Tonight at last, I feel it shake. I feel the night stretching away, thousands long behind the days till they reach the darkness where all of me is ancestor. I move my hand and feel a touch move with me, and when I brush my own mind across another, I am with my mother's mother. Sure as footsteps in my waiting self, I find her, and she brings arms that carry answers for me, intimate, awaiting bounty. Carry me. She leaves this trail through a shutter of the veil, and leaves like amber where she stays, a gift for her perpetual gaze. You've done it now. Your curiosity has betrayed you. You're out on mischief night, and you've found the haunted house at the end of the cul-de-sac. Are you brave enough to go onto the porch, ring the doorbell, and say trick-or-treat? This is a special Halloween edition of The Monster's Lair. Okay, girls, what's your favorite holiday? My favorite holiday is Christmas! My favorite holiday is Halloween. Halloween? And my favorite day is Christmas. Why is your favorite holiday Halloween, Amy? Because you get to have candy and dress up. Do you know why we dress up on Halloween? Yeah. Why? Because it's Halloween and you get to dress up like people. Yeah, but do you know why? Superheroes. No, I do not. You don't know why that's a tradition? No. Okay. Now it's my turn. Do you know why I have? You know why why I love Christmas so much? Why do you love Christmas? Because you put the lights on your Christmas tree. That's your favorite part? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know why we put lights on our Christmas tree? No. Or how it became a tradition? No. No. Okay. Well, I'm going to do an episode where I talk about why we do both of those things on my podcast. Does that sound like a good idea? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Say bye to everybody. Bye. It's time to go on the train. Samhain is a traditional Gaelic festival marking the end of the harvest season and the beginning of winter or the darker half of the year. 
traditionally is celebrated from October 31st to November 1st as the Celtic day began and ended at sunset. This is about halfway between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. This festival was historically observed by the ancient Gaels and today by mostly the Irish, Scottish, the Manx people, Galician people, Celtic neo-pagans, and Wiccans. This is about halfway between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. It is one of the four Gaelic seasonal festivals along with Imbolc, Beltane, and Lunasad. Samhain is mentioned in some of the earliest Irish literature and many important events in Irish mythology happen or begin on Samhain. It was the time when cattle were brought back down from the summer pastures and when livestock were slaughtered for the winter. Historically, during Samhain, special bonfires were lit, which were deemed to have protective and cleansing powers, and there were rituals involving them. Samhain was seen as a liminal time, when the boundary between this world and the other world could more easily be crossed. This meant that spirits or fairies could more easily come into our world. Most scholars see the Aoshi, or spirits in Gaelic, as remnants of the pagan gods and nature spirits. At Samhain, it was believed that the Aoshi needed to be proper, propitiated, which means to win the favor of a god to ensure that the people and their livestock survived the winter. Offerings of food and drink were left outside for them. The souls of the dead were also thought to revisit their homes seeking hospitality. Feasts were had at which the souls of dead kin were beckoned to attend and a place set at the table for them. Mumming, which is participating in a folk play, and guising, which is displaying oneself in fancy dress, were part of the festival and involved people going door to door in costume or in disguise, often reciting verses in exchange for food. The costumes may have been a way of imitating and disguising oneself from the Aoshi. Divination rituals and games were also a big part of the festival and often involved nuts and apples. In the 9th century, the Western Christian Church shifted the date of All Saints Day to November 1st, while November 2nd later became All Souls Day. Over time, Samhain and All Saints slash All Souls Day merged to create the modern day Halloween. Historians have used the name Samhain to refer to Gaelic Halloween customs up until the 19th century. Irish mythology was originally a spoken tradition, but much of it was eventually written down in the Middle Ages by Christian monks who Christianized it to some extent. One custom described a blatant example of a pagan rite surviving into the Christian times was observed in the islands of the UK until the early 19th century. 
on October 31st, the locals would go down to the shore. One man would wade into the water up to his waist, where he would pour out a cup of ale and ask a god, Shoni, whom he called the god of the sea, to bestow blessings on them. People also took special care not to offend the Aoshi and sought to ward off any who were out to cause mischief. They stayed near to home or, if forced to walk in the darkness, turned their clothing inside out or carried iron or salt to keep the malevolent spirits of the dead and faith folk at bay. The dead were also honored at Samhain. The beginning of winter may have been seen as the most fitting time to do so, as it was a time of dying in nature. The souls of the dead were thought to revisit their homes, seeking hospitality. Places were set at the dinner table and by the fire to welcome them. The belief that the souls of the dead return home on one night of the year and must be appeased seems to have ancient origins and is found in many cultures throughout the world. One of the most notable besides Samhain is Dio de los Muertes, or Day of the Dead in Mexico. On the night of Samhain, it was believed that the approach of winter would drive the poor, shivering, hungry ghosts from the bare fields and the leafless woodlands to the shelter of the cottage. It would also mean the souls of thankful kin could return to bestow blessings just as easily as that of a wronged person could return to wreak revenge. Another major practice that was done was the playing of pranks. Another tradition that has survived its way into modern Halloween. Playing pranks at Samhain is recorded in the Scottish Highlands as far back as 1736 and was also common in Ireland, which led to Samhain being nicknamed Mischief Night in some parts. Wearing costumes at Halloween spread to England in the 20th century, as did the custom of playing pranks. During the mass immigration of Irish and Scottish to North America, they brought their rich traditions of mumming and guising and pranks and they caught on like a wild Samhain bonfire. Modern-day trick-or-treating may have come from the custom of going door-to-door, collecting food for Samhain feasts, fuel for Samhain bonfires, and or offerings for the Aoshi. Alternatively, it may have come from the All Saints slash All Souls custom of collecting soul cakes. A soul cake also known as a soul mass cake, is a small round cake which is traditionally made for Halloween, All Saints Day, and All Souls Day to commemorate the dead in the Christian tradition. The lanterns for geysers and pranksters abroad on on the night in some places was provided by turnips hollowed out to act as lanterns and were often carved with grotesque faces. They were also set on windowsills. By those who made them, the lanterns were variously said to represent the spirits or supernatural beings or were used to ward off evil spirits.
These were common in parts of Ireland and Scotland into the 20th century. In the 20th century, they spread to other parts of England and became generally known as jack-o'-lanterns after our old pal here in the lair, that sneaky slick, silver-tongued, Irish, good-hearted, villainous, drunkard, bastard, Stingy Jack. According to the story, an old Irishman named Stingy Jack once invited the devil to have a drink with him. The devil heeded the call as he thought it would lead to the capture of an easily gotten soul. True to his name, Stingy Jack didn't want to pay for his drink, so he used his Irish charm and silver tongue to reluctantly but finally convince the devil to turn himself into a coin that Jack could use to buy their drinks. Once the devil did so, Jack decided to keep the money and put it into his pocket next to a silver cross, which prevented the devil from changing back into his original form. Jack eventually, reluctantly, freed the devil under the condition that he would not bother Jack for one year, and that should Jack die, he would not claim his soul. The next year, the devil returned for the debt that was owed him. Jack, once again using his quick wit and gift of gab, again tricked the devil into climbing into a tree to pick a piece of fruit. While Satan was up in the tree, Jack carved a sign of the cross into the tree's bark so the devil could not come down. Not until Jack had used his powers of persuasion did Old Scratch promise Jack not to bother him for ten more years. Soon after the drinking and gallivanting took its toll on Old Stingy Jack, he died. As the legend goes, when Jack got to the pearly gates, God would not allow such an unsavory figure into heaven. The devil, upset by the tricks that stingy, sneaky, silver-tongued, drunkard bastard Stingy Jack had played on him, and keeping his word not to claim his soul, would not allow Jack into hell. He sent Stingy Jack off into the dark night with only a burning coal to light his way. Jack put the coal into a carved-out turnip and has been roaming the earth ever since. The Irish began referring to these ghostly figures as the Jack of the Lantern, and then simply shortened it to Jack-o'-Lantern. Immigrants from these countries brought the Jack-o'-Lantern tradition with them when they came to the United States. They then soon found that pumpkins, a fruit native to America, make perfect Jack-o'-Lanterns, and we've been carving them ever since. So next time you carve a pumpkin on Halloween, remember the story of Stingy Jack and how he tricked the devil with his sharp silver tongue. We're going to go back and revisit a story from one of our favorite guests here inside the Monster's Lair, a gentleman known by the name of Mike Morgan, also known as at MadThinker on Instagram. Uh, this gentleman makes some beats for us to use as background music in our show. He makes beats for everyone, so if you guys are interested, hit him up for a nominal fee. He will get you an awesome piece of art and music that you can use for whatever your purposes deem. 
Uh, but with that being said, we're going to revisit a story that he told on an episode where he came on as a guest and did an interview about shadow people. Well, his story about his first encounter with a shadow person just happens to coincide with Halloween. So without further ado, here's Mike Morgan's Halloween go- shadow person story. It happened on Halloween day in broad daylight. So, okay, let me paint the story for you, okay? And then we can talk about the details. So, I get, I get called on Devil's Night, the day before Halloween, I get called, hey, man, we're having a party. I'm like, okay, cool. Bunch of people I know. So, I go to this party, and uh, somebody introduces a bottle of Everclear. And I go, what's that? And they go, oh, man, this will fuck you up right here. And at the time... I was a pretty self-destructive person. So it's like, cool, let me drink that whole fucking bottle. So I drink not even close to the whole bottle. And I get disgustingly sick. And I'm laying with my head in a gutter. And I'm puking. And all these girls are walking by like, ah, ew. And I'm like, ah, fuck you, whatever. Right? Right. And I, and I was like, eh, you're not going to fuck me anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but anyway, so... Uh, but I have wound up, you know, I wind up eventually fucking feeling better and I have a great time at this party and blah, blah, blah. And I, I, so I was brought to this party by a friend. They drove me there. Right. Right. And I was in this weird transitional period where I had, I was living with my mom in Fresno, right, uh, on, uh, Lamona, right behind the, you know, where the, that store called Balls Liquor, that's like right outside the tower district. Yeah, bro. You're right, you're right up the street from my neighborhood when you're in that area. So yeah. Okay. There you go. So I'm right here on just like three blocks down from there. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, my mom had just moved from that house to a place in Kingsburg. So we're in this weird transitional period where our stuff was still at this house, but we were at the place in Kingsburg. My buddy came and picked me up from Kingsburg and took me to Fresno for this party. So we're partying, whatever, whatever. I wake up, I pass out, wake up the next day. There's bodies everywhere. People that are just passed out, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, fuck, wow, man, that was a good time. And then I'm looking around for my friend that gave me a ride and he ain't there. So I'm like, uh, hmm. Okay, hopefully one of these people here is willing to give me a ride to Kingsburg. Not a fucking one of them were willing to drive me to Kingsburg. Right, of course. So I was like, shit, man. Well, there happened to be a friend of mine there. His name's Tiny. Of course, he's huge. And uh, Tiny tells me, he's like, well, I won't give you a ride to Kingsburg, but uh, uh, is there anywhere else I can take you? Because he's like, I'll take you anywhere in town. And I said, oh, okay, cool. Take me to my old house. Because like I said, we were in a transitional period. Right. So I, a lot of my stuff was still at this house. So I go over there with him, and uh, we go into my house. Okay, and then, now the layout for this house is you walk through the front door, and on the left-hand side, as soon as you walk in, there's a hallway. And the hallway is like a T. On the left-hand side, if you go down the hallway, is my bedroom. And then on the right-hand side was my mom's bedroom. And then in the middle is the bathroom. So he says, uh, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. I said, okay, yeah, man, it's right here. And then I walk into my room, and I turn on my stereo, because I still had my stereo there. And I was bumping some Fear Factory and uh, chilling. And I was like, oh, man, uh, fucking grooving out. And then I start 
talking to Tiny comes out and I'm talking to him, but I'm not looking at him. Right. I'm yeah. just kind of like looking through my stuff here. And, uh, it's like, yeah, man, this band's badass. You ever heard this band before? And I look at him and I realize that he's not looking at me. He's looking down the hallway at my mom's room. So I look at my mom's room and that's when I saw and, uh, a shadow man. Now to describe that, this, how the shadow man looks as, have you ever seen It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Yeah, absolutely, man. That's a great show. Okay, you know Charlie when he dresses up as Green Man? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, picture that Green Man is in all black. Okay. That's exactly what this looked like. Now, I look at it, and it's just this man standing, this black man, not a black man, but like a man in black, <laughs> standing there. A black mask. Like, a, it looks like a living fucking shadow right right and but it has substance and, and 3d quality like you know like a shadow is like 2d when it's across a wall there's no dimension to it right but this but this guy had dimension like i said it looked like a guy wearing a full body black stocking yeah like no one face. of the uh what do they call those things like uh morph suit yeah no face no eyes no nothing just fucking blackness like a yawning black abyss in this man's, in this thing's face. And I got to see it long enough for it to walk. It was standing in the doorway, and as soon as I looked at it and really got a good look at it, it walked to the left into the room. Now, my rational mind, because I try to rationalize everything, my rational mind tells me somebody's broken into my house. Right. So I pull out a knife, because I always carried a knife on me back then. Uh, I fucking grab my knife, and me and Tiny run into the bedroom, and there's nobody in there. Now, keep in mind, the windows in this house are like those old-school windows. You know those ones where you have to, like, kind of, like, wind them? Kind of like how a, a, like, old car where you have to roll up the window? Right, yeah, my mom has those in her house where she's... Yeah, that. they're, like, shutter windows, so you, you turn this you turn this little crank, and it makes the windows come in and out, but you can't really fully open the window. Right. And they're small. So there's no fucking way that there was a dude there, and he just jumped out the window, because the windows are too goddamn small for any man to fit through them. Yeah, you're gonna have to bust that whole thing off. It's, it's uh, you know, the frame to get out of it. Right. And so I walk, I, I come into that room and I look around and there's nobody in there. And every fucking hair, James, every hair on my body is standing on end. And I feel it's tingling through my, through like, it's hard to describe, man. It's kind of like a static electricity or something. Yeah, I know the feeling well, my friend. It, it was prickling the, my scalp and the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. And I told Tiny, I was like, how long were you looking at that thing? And he said, man, I was I was looking at him for a good minute. And I was like, what was it doing? And he said, just looking back at me. And I was like, "Is it was were my eyes fucking with me or was that a guy? And he's like, that wasn't a man. And Wicked. Uh, dude, right? And I was just like, I didn't know what to say after that. And I, but besides that, I was like, hey, man. I'm going to call my mom because we still had our phone hooked up over there. I was like, I called my mom and I had her come get me and I never went back to that fucking house. <laughs> I don't blame you, bro. 
Now, you know what, man? They kind of pieced together a lot of shit for me because when I was living at the house with my mom, my mom was having a lot of problems there, man. She was sick all the time. Uh-huh. And she was almost like losing, I don't want to say losing her mind, but she was having a lot of like emotional problems while we were there. She's very unhappy and almost acting uncharacteristic a lot. And so whenever I started, you know, sat down with my thoughts later when I got, you know, somewhere safe and I started piecing these things together, I told my mom about it. And my mom, at first, she didn't believe me. She just thought somebody broke in the house. And then when I explained to her, like, that's impossible. And then she started really thinking about the aspect of maybe that was some kind of spirit. Right. Then she started, like, crying because she thought, like, man, you know, I, the emotional turmoil that she was going through at that time, you know, she was able to kind of stop and think, like, well, maybe something was influencing me. And I don't know, you know, man, I, to be honest, when I saw this thing, I didn't feel any negative emotions from it. Mm-hmm. I, it was just shock. And then whenever I fucking realized that that that, that wasn't a person, like I said, I felt my, like my, 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 my body was just on pins and needles. Be perfect. Make it otherwise. Yesterday is torn in shreds. Lightning's thousand sulfur eyes rip apart the breathing beds. Her bones crack and pulverize. Doom creeps in on rubber treads. Countless overwrought housewives, minds unraveling like threads. Try lipstick shades to tranquilize fears of age and general dreads. Sit tight. Be perfect. Swat the spies. Don't take faucets or fountainheads. Drink tasty antidotes, otherwise you and the werewolf, newlyweds. Halloween is not Halloween without a good story about a haunted house. So here is my story about the supposedly most haunted house in the United States. On a quiet residential street in the small town of Villisca, Iowa, sits an old white frame house. On a dark evening, the absence of lights and sounds are the first indication to visitors that this house is different from the other homes that surround it. Taking a closer look, you will notice the doors and windows are tightly closed and covered. An outhouse visible in the backyard suggests that this house does not occupy a place in the 21st century, but somehow belongs in another era. An old, worn, weather-beaten sign warns rather than welcomes. This is the murder house. Long before serial killers and mass murderers had become a known occurrence, and way before it became an obsession of entertainment seekers and fodder for everyone in their mother's podcasts, two adults and six children were found brutally murdered in their beds 
and the small Midwestern town of Villisca, Iowa, on June 9, 1912. During the weeks that followed, life in this small town changed drastically and would never be the same again. At approximately 5 a.m., Mary Peckham, who lived in the home next door, stepped into her yard to hang laundry. At approximately 7 a.m., she realized that not only had the moors not been outside, nor the chores began, but the house itself seemed unusually still. Between 7 and 8 a.m., Mary Peckham approached the house and knocked on the door. When she received no response, she attempted to open the door only to find it locked from the inside. After letting out the Moore's chickens, Mary placed a call to, to Josiah Moore's brother, Ross Moore, setting into place one of the most mismanaged murder investigations to ever be undertaken. Based on the testimonies of Mary Peckham and those who saw Moore's the day before at the local church's Children's Day exercise, it is believed that sometime between midnight and 5 a.m., an unknown assailant entered the home of J.B. Moore and brutally murdered all occupants of the house with an axe. The victims were owner J.B. Moore, his wife, Sarah Montgomery Moore, their four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul, and two of their children's friends, who were sisters, Lena and Ina May Stillinger. Eight people had been bludgeoned to death, presumably with the blunt end of an axe left at the crime scene. It appeared all had been asleep at the time of the murders. Doctors estimated the times of death as somewhere shortly after midnight. Curtains were drawn on all the windows in the house except two, which did not have curtains. Those windows were covered with clothing belonging to the Moors. All of the victims' faces were covered with the bedclothes after they were killed. Strangely, all of the mirrors in the home were covered up with sheets or clothing. A creepy and odd detail. A kerosene lamp was found at the foot of the bed of Josiah and Sarah. The chimney was off and the wick had been turned back. The chimney was found under the dresser. A similar lamp was found at the foot of the bed of the Stillinger girls, friends of the Moore children who were overstaying the night, and the chimney was also off. The axe that was used as a murder weapon was found in the room occupied by the Stillinger girls. It was bloody, but an attempt had been made to wipe it off. The axe belonged to the owner and patriarch of the family, J.B. Moore. The ceilings in the parents' bedroom and the children's room showed gouge marks, apparently made by the upswing of the blade side of the axe. A piece of keychain was found on the floor in the downstairs bedroom. A pan of bloody water was discovered on the kitchen table as well as a plate of uneaten food. The doors were all locked. The bodies of Lena and Ina were found in the downstairs bedroom of the parlor. 
Ina was sleeping closest to the wall with Lena on her right side. A gray coat covered her face. Lena, according to the inquest testimony of Dr. F.S. Williams, quote, lay as though she had kicked one foot out of her bed sideways with one hand up under the pillow on her right side, half sideways, not clear over, but just a little. Apparently, she had been struck in the head and squirmed down in the bed, perhaps one-third of the way, unquote. Lena's nightgown was slid up and she was wearing no undergarments. There was a blood stain on the inside of her right knee and what the doctors assumed was a defensive wound on her arm. Dr. Lindquist, the local coroner, reported a slab of bacon on the floor in the downstairs bedroom lying near the axe. Weighing nearly two pounds, it was wrapped in what he thought may be a dish towel. A second slab of bacon, about the same size, was found in the icebox. Lindquist also made note of one of Sarah's shoes, which he found on Josiah's side of the bed. The shoe was found on its side. However, it had blood inside as well as under it. It was Lindquist's assumption that the shoe had been upright when Josiah was first struck and that blood ran off the bed into the shoe. He believed the killer later returned to the bed to inflict additional blows and subsequently knocked the shoe over. Had these murders been committed today, it is almost certain that law enforcement officials would have easily solved the crime and brought the murderer to justice. Almost 100 years later, however, the Velisca Axe murders remain a mystery. The murder or murderers are probably long dead, their gruesome secret buried with them. In hindsight, it's easy to blame the officials at the time for what only could be considered a gross mismanagement of what little evidence may have remained. It's important, however, that we also realize that in 1912, fingerprinting was a fairly new venture and DNA testing unimaginable. Although a local druggist had the forethought to attempt to enter the crime scene with his camera, he was promptly thrown out. It is quite probable that even if the crime scene had been secure, the evidence would not have provided any real clues. There was no central database of fingerprints, so even if any had been recovered, the murderer would have had to have been apprehended for a comparison. The crime remains unsolved to this day, and much of the home is still preserved exactly as it was on the night of the murder. With no running water or electricity, which provides that special ambiance for the many who have visited. You can take regular daytime guided tours, or you can become one of the unfortunate souls who have shelled out the $400 plus to stay a night. But, visit the Velisca Axe Murder House at your own risk. In 2014, an anonymous paranormal investigator who booked a room wound up stabbing himself by morning. Many types of paranormal activity have been reported in the Velisca House. In fact, 
there's not a ghostly phenomenon that hasn't been reported at the house. Disembodied footsteps and voices, things moving, apparitions, shadows, shadow entities, and bad vibes. You name it, the Velisca Axe Murder House is purported to have it. It has been featured on TV shows such as Ghost Adventures and Scariest Places on Earth, and featured on podcasts such as Lore and My Favorite Murder. The Velisca Axe Murder House in Iowa has been deemed by some as the most haunted house in America. It would make a great stay for Halloween night, or any night, for any hardcore horror or true crime fans with a morbid curiosity or curiosity in contacting the other side, or whatever else could possibly wait for us after death. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, fillet of a finny snake in the cauldron boil and bake, Eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and howlet's wing, for a charm of power trouble, like a hell broth boil and bubble. Double, double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, cool it with a baboon's blood, then the charm is firm and good. I hope you enjoyed the show, and go and have yourself a very happy, healthy, and fun Halloween. <laughs>